Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the Grimes sisters. But first, your true crime headlines. Jeffrey Epstein's longtime associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, was denied bail in court proceedings conducted via video link this week. Ms. Maxwell is accused of helping Epstein recruit, groom, and sexually abuse young girls. Appearing remotely from a federal detention center in Brooklyn, Maxwell pleaded not guilty to the charges against her, which include transportation of a minor and intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, perjury, and conspiracy. Her attorneys requested that she be released to home confinement on $5 million bond, but prosecutors argued that the wealthiest socialite was an extreme flight risk due to her international ties and considerable financial resources. In addition to her American citizenship, Maxwell is also a citizen of the UK and France, the latter of which does not extradite its citizens to the United States. Judge Allison J. Nathan cited this argument in her ruling, agreeing that Maxwell should be denied bail. Maxwell's arrest came almost a year to the day after Jeffrey Epstein's arrest on sex trafficking charges. Epstein, who was also denied bail, died in federal custody last August as he was awaiting trial. His death was ruled a suicide. Maxwell's trial is scheduled to take place next July. She faces up to 35 years in federal prison if she is convicted. Two inmates have escaped from Bon Air Juvenile Correctional Center in Virginia early this week, and police believe that an employee at the facility assisted them in their escape. The Virginia Department of Juvenile Justice reports that 20-year-old Jabbar Taylor and 18-year-old Rashad Williams escaped in the early morning hours on Monday through a hole that had been cut in a security fence and then fled in a waiting vehicle. Taylor was serving a 50-year sentence for stabbing two men to death in 2015, and Williams was serving time for robbery and malicious wounding. Both men were scheduled to be transferred to adult prison when they turned 21. 23-year-old Destiny Harris, an employee of the Bonaire facility, was arrested and charged with two counts of aiding escape of a juvenile. She is being held at the Chesterfield County Jail. Both escaped prisoners remain on the loose, and they are believed to have left the state. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the Grimes sisters. But first, a quick break. I believe that reading labels is key. I do it with everything, from the food that I buy to the beauty products that I use. And this year, I've been making the switch to more natural products. That's why I decided to go native. Native deodorant is vegan and never tested on animals. So it's not just good for your body, it's good for everybody. Native is made of natural ingredients that you can actually recognize, like tapioca starch, shea butter, and coconut oil. Did you know that most deodorants work by using aluminum which forms a plug in your sweat glands to keep you from sweating? Yeah, that didn't sound healthy to me either. That's why Native never uses ingredients like parabens, sulfates, aluminum, or talc. 
and switching to an aluminum-free deodorant doesn't mean you have to sacrifice on odor protection. Native keeps me smelling and feeling fresh all day long. With over 10 scents, Native has something for everyone. Their most popular classic scents are coconut and vanilla, cucumber and mint, citrus and herbal, and my favorite, lavender and rose. Plus, they have rotating seasonal scents, like apple and honeysuckle, cactus flower and poppy, and my new summer favorite, rosé. So now, my armpits can smell like my quarantine habit. Go native. It's risk-free to try. Every product comes with free shipping within the U.S., plus free 30-day returns and exchanges. You have nothing to lose. Do what I did and make the switch to Native today by going to nativedo.com slash murderminute or use the promo code murderminute at checkout to get 20% off your first order. That's n-a-t-i-v-e-d-e-o dot com slash murderminute or use the promo code murderminute at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's nativedo.com slash murderminute. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On the evening of December 28, 1956, two teenage sisters, 15-year-old Barbara Grimes and 13-year-old Patricia Grimes, left their home after having dinner to go to the movies. The now-closed Brighton Theater at 4223 South Archer Avenue in Chicago was playing the Elvis Presley movie Love Me Tender. Like most teenage girls their age, the Grimes sisters were obsessed with Elvis. They had already seen the film over a dozen times and were planning to stay late to watch a double feature. Barbara and Patricia left the house at around 7.30 p.m. and promised their mother, Loretta Grimes, that they would be home by midnight. But when midnight arrived and the girls hadn't come home, Loretta got worried. She sent two of their siblings, 17-year-old Teresa and 14-year-old Joey, to the bus stop to wait for their sisters. They waited and waited, but there was no sign of Barbara and Patricia. After three buses came and went, they returned home. By 2 a.m., they knew that something was wrong. Loretta called the police and filed a missing persons report. An investigation and search for the girls began immediately. Dorothy Weinert, a friend of Patricia's, had also been at the theater that night and confirmed that the girls had made it to the movie. Dorothy told police that she and her own younger sister sat behind the Grimes sisters during the first screening, but went home after it was over. She was the last confirmed person to see the sisters alive. Hundreds of Cook County police officers, friends, family, and Chicago residents searched high and low for the Grimes sisters. 
It was one of the largest, most intensive citywide hunts in Chicago history. Even nearby towns and adjacent counties joined in the effort. Police conducted door-to-door -door canvassing throughout Brighton Park, and more than 15,000 flyers were distributed to local homes. Parishioners of the Grimes Family's Church offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to their whereabouts. But as the days passed, the search stalled, and detectives grew desperate. The best theory that the police department could come up with was that Patricia and Barbara Grimes must have run away to Nashville, Tennessee, to meet Elvis. The theory spread like wildfire and gained so much traction that even Elvis Presley himself was informed of it and addressed the Grimes sisters in radio and televised messages, saying, quote, If you are good Presley fans, you'll go home and ease your mother's worries. Reports of sightings of the missing sisters and empty leads poured in from all over the country. They ranged from seeing the girls after the movie listening to Elvis Presley records in a department store to witnessing the girls leaving the bus station out of Chicago and seeing them at businesses all the way in Nashville. Some teenagers who had been at the movie that night reported seeing the sisters get into a car with a man who looked similar to Elvis Presley. One friend of Patricia's claimed to have received a phone call and that she had heard Patricia's voice on the other line. But Loretta Grimes didn't believe that her daughters would run away. She feared that they had been abducted. Her girls would never run off. They had only $2.50 when they left the house, and she was certain that they would never have left behind the new radio that they had just received for Christmas. Loretta Grimes publicly pleaded, If someone is holding them, please let the girls call me. Adding, I'll forgive them from the bottom of my heart. On the afternoon of January 22, 1957, Loretta's worst fears were confirmed. A construction worker named Leonard Prescott was driving east on German Church Road in Willow Springs when he spotted two, quote, flesh-colored things that looked to him like two mannequins laying on the other side of a guardrail. He went back to his house and told his wife Marie what he had seen. Together, Mr. and Mrs. Prescott returned and found the naked, frozen bodies of Barbara and Patricia Grimes. Marie fainted at the sight. Barbara was lying face down, and Patricia was lying face up on top of her sister, covering her head. Their faces had been disfigured by animals. They called the police. It appeared as though the sisters had been laying there by the side of the road since the snowfall two weeks prior. 
three wounds resembling those typically inflicted by ice picks were discovered on Barbara's chest, and signs of blunt force trauma were visible on her head and face. Patricia had multiple bruises. Autopsy reports later confirmed that the girls must have been killed within a few hours of their disappearance. The dinner they ate before going to the movie theater was still sitting in their stomachs. Chief Investigator Harry Gloss of the Cook County Coroner's Office also believed that both sisters had been sexually assaulted. The Grimes sisters' deaths were ruled a murder, but despite a lengthy examination by three experienced forensic pathologists, the cause of death was inconclusive. The wounds appeared to have been inflicted after their death, and a toxicology report revealed that neither girl had any drugs or alcohol in their systems. In the end, the only cause of death listed was, quote, secondary exposure to the elements. The police scrambled to confirm a suspect, and found one in 21-year-old Edward Lee, or Benny, Bedwell, a part-time dishwasher who happened to look a little bit like Elvis. Police rushed Bedwell to a motel and kept him there for three days. By the end of it, they had coerced him into signing a 14-page confession, despite the fact that Bedwell could not read or write. In his confession, Bledwell claimed that he and a 28-year-old acquaintance, William Cole Willingham, had spent several days with the Grimes sisters drinking in various bars on West Madison Street and feeding them hot dogs before beating them and throwing them into a ditch after the sisters refused their sexual advances. He later recanted this confession, and autopsy reports confirmed that it was false, as the physical evidence didn't match with this version of events. Upon reading his confession, Loretta Grimes was quoted as saying, It's a lie. My girls wouldn't be on West Madison Street. They didn't even know where it was. With no physical evidence against him, Bedwell was cleared. 17-year-old Max Fleeg also confessed to the murder during the course of a voluntary polygraph test, but due to the fact that he was a juvenile and Illinois laws prohibiting juveniles from being subjected to lie detector tests, the evidence would not be admissible in court. With again no physical evidence, police released Fleeg without charge. Fleeg was later imprisoned for the unrelated murder of another young woman. Another suspect was Walter Kranz, who said that he dreamt of the location of the girls' bodies. Kranz was brought in for questioning, but was cleared. On January 28, 1957, the Grimes sisters' funeral was held 
at St. Maurice Church. The girls were in white closed caskets, each topped with their photographs. All fees for the service were waived by the funeral home, and they were buried at Holy Sepulchre Catholic Cemetery. In May of 1957, Loretta Grimes received an anonymous telephone call from a man who claimed to have undressed and murdered her daughters. The Grimes family had received numerous hoax phone calls, but this one was different. The caller ridiculed police for attempting to pin the crime on Bedwell and ended the call with a chilling piece of private information. I know something about your little girl that no one else knows, not even the police, he said. The smallest girl's toes were crossed at the feet. He laughed and hung up. Loretta Grimes believed that her daughters had to have been murdered by someone they knew, because Barbara and Patricia would never have entered a vehicle driven by a stranger, no matter how cold it was that night. The following year, on November 15, 1958, a group of Boy Scouts on a nature hike found the decapitated nude body of 15-year-old Bonnie Lay Scott in a gully off the Grand Road, just a few miles from where the Grimes sisters had been found. The day after the body of Bonnie Lay Scott was discovered, Loretta Grimes received another phone call. I've committed another perfect crime, the caller told her. A 23-year-old man named Charles Leroy Melquist, a known acquaintance of Bonnie Lay Scott, confessed to the crime after failing multiple polygraph tests. Melquist had a reputation for inappropriate contact with young girls and a history of violence stretching back to high school. There were obscene telephone calls, stalking incidents, and at least three young women told Chicago police that Melquist had attempted to strangle them while sitting in his car or on dates with Melquist. In a seven-page written confession, Melquist claimed that he and Bonnie Lee Scott were on a date the night of her disappearance. They were parked in his driveway, quote, goofing around and wrestling when Melquist put a pillow over Bonnie's face and accidentally smothered her. Melquist then took off her clothes, stuffed them under the car seat, and drove around looking for a place to dump her body. He dropped her body over the guardrail on the Grand Road and hoped that it would be hidden by the brush. But then, Melquist said, he couldn't stop thinking about it. He returned the following Friday, quote, just to make sure she was there. Two weeks later, he returned again, this time with a knife and a pitchfork, with the intention of burying her body. 
Instead, he, quote, had an urge to cut. He mutilated her body, severed her head, and kicked it a few feet away. On May 2, 1958, Melquist was convicted of the murder of Bonnie Lay Scott and sentenced to 99 years in prison. He served just 11 years, was paroled, got married, had two children, and died in 2010. Many believe that Charles Leroy Melquist was also responsible for the murders of the Grimes sisters and got away with it. Police promised Loretta Grimes that they would never stop looking for her daughter's killer. But in 1989, at the age of 83, Loretta Grimes died without answers. She was adamant until her death that the man who called her after Bonnie Lay Scott was killed had been the same individual who had contacted her in May of 1957, revealing the deformity on her daughter's feet, saying, I will never forget that voice. The case remains open. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.